Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I am the host, Brianna Battles, founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism and CEO of Everyday Battles. I'm a career strength and conditioning coach, entrepreneur, mom of two wild little boys, and a lifelong athlete. I believe that athleticism does not end when motherhood begins, and this podcast is dedicated to coaching you by providing meaningful conversations, insights, and interview topics related to fitness, mindset, parenting, and of course, all the nuances of pregnancy and postpartum. From expert interviews to engaging conversations and reflections, this podcast is your trustworthy, relatable resource for learning how to practice brave through every season in your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Practice Babe Brave podcast. Today I am here with Stephanie Godrow and we're going to be talking about pursuing a lifetime of athleticism. If you're not familiar with her, she really focuses on working with female athletes. Typically once they cross over 40, would you say so, Steph? Like that 40-ish yep. range? Yep. Yeah. As they're pursuing being an athlete, because mm-hmm. once again, like athleticism does not end. It might just look a little different through different seasons in our life. So a lot of our work and messaging is so complimentary, and I'm really excited to bring her on the show today. Steph, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Yeah. So give us a little background on where you started and how you got here, which is a really big question. Uh, I was like, (laughs) how much time do we have? So I'll try to give you the condensed version. I have been working online full-time since 2013. My business has changed in that time, when I came in, I was focusing on recipes and recipe development. I was writing cookbooks and I transitioned in back, sort of back into focusing on uh, performance nutrition, um, sports nutrition, and strength training. So, a lot of people think that I started lifting or doing strength training after that, which isn't actually accurate. I started lifting and kind of found strength training in 2010. Um, my background as an athlete goes back to being a kid. I played team sports like soccer. I was terrible at basketball and got cut from the freshman basketball team. If that gives you any indication of how bad I was at basketball, like freshman (laughs) year, they take everybody and I still got cut, but, um, you know, played soccer, did track, um, martial arts. And then when I went to college, I started actually riding mountain bikes for fun, which became racing. Um, I became a teacher professionally. I was teaching high school chemistry and biology and um, raced mountain bikes for a really long time, got into the ultra endurance leg of that. So I was racing 12, 24 hour bike races. And in about 2010, really burnt out, really, really burnt out from racing. In hindsight, they always say, right, hindsight's 2020, or you can connect the dots going backwards, like Steve Jobs famous mm-hmm. quote. Um, I wasn't eating enough. I was definitely in a state of low energy availability. And it really impacted me, my body, how I felt about things. And I just said, you know what, I'm I'm done with racing. And so I walked into a CrossFit gym. I learned how to strength train for real for really the first time in my life. And it changed everything. So I did, you know, that for and still do that. <laughs> so it's been many, many years. Now I also do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've done that for almost the last six years or so. Um and currently am coaching women over 40 in sports nutrition, performance nutrition. And like you said, how to maintain your your athleticism and your athletic identity into your 40s and 50s and beyond, since a lot of us didn't really have those 
women role models growing up. So that's, that's the long and short story of how I got to doing what I'm doing. There's like, there's just so much there. (laughs) You've been in the game for a long time. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we sort of have both grown up in this culture of having, of reading blogs back in 2010, 2012, 2013. Um, Like, I remember you girl, you know, like I was (laughs) the paleo life too. And like finding CrossFit and seeing what that did for female athletes after they turned 22 or when they were done with college, you know, people were starting to find CrossFit. They were getting exposed to, wait, I'm still an athlete just because I'm done with college or just because I'm this or that, like, doesn't mean I'm done. So then we were finding triathlons. We were finding mountain biking. We were finding CrossFit. We were finding all of these things. And it really does feel like this certain generation of women that crossed that bridge, so to speak, and are now fast forward like a decade. Mm-hmm. We're still in the game. And it's been yeah. so interesting to see all of that transpire. Well, yeah. And when you think back, Title Nine is 50 years old yeah. this year. And so thinking about, of course, there were women doing sports before Title IX, but it really opened the floodgates for more participation, for equal participation in funding, in in secondary and tertiary education. And it really, you know, when again, we think back, you know, maybe our moms went to aerobics class. I mean, and, and again, this is very stereotypical, but right. it wasn't like it is today. And so I think that's one of the reasons why folks similar ages to us, you know, I'm 43. So kind of like at the very end of, so either like a young Gen X, you know, elder millennial, we didn't have, you know, uh, that sort of like exposure to like, Ooh, like all these women playing sports and like exactly doing professional, professional sports or even just high level sports. So it's, um, it's really cool because I think we get to define what that is and, or redefine what that is and, and sort of be that like bridge, that torch uh, carrier for the next generation of, of girls. I think that's really cool. I agree. It really is saying like, this is what is possible during pregnancy or postpartum, or when you're in your mid thirties, that's where I'm at right now. What happens when we cross 40 though? And then 50 and 60 and what I'm seeing, like my mom do at almost 65, like it's in, it's really inspiring. And like you said, there there hasn't been a whole lot of these examples. When I was in high school, there wasn't even a girls water polo team. I had to play on the boys team initially. And it's like, God, that wasn't that long ago. And then we've seen it explode over time, but really there just hasn't been as many opportunities. Like I think we almost forget how far we've come in a very short amount of time. And we still have so much freaking work to do. Yes. (laughs) Because with all of this drive for us to keep pursuing being an athlete or partaking in fitness kind of across a spectrum of interest and ability within that we've also been exposed for most of our lives to a form of diet culture or of like misunderstanding of what it means to be an athlete or to exercise and what that actually needs to look like for female athletes so can you talk a little bit about some things that you've seen and some misconceptions and kind of what, I don't know, like, let's just talk about that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh, I always start with, um, you know, a lot of us again, came of age in the the mid nineties. I mean, I graduated in 97. So like, 
I feel like if you were in high school in the 90s or early 2000s, especially there was this really horrible period of diet culture, which I think unfortunately is sort of coming back, which was the just get as skinny as you can, Kate Moss, mm-hmm. um, you know, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, like don't eat kind of diets. And so we were exposed to that. And then we had things like snack wells. And then, I mean, it's just, we've seen it all, right? Um, the pervasive messaging that a lot of us got in our formative years was that. Then we were also seeing our family members, our, our grandmas, our aunties, our moms, our you know friends, older friends who were very entrenched in dieting. So a lot of what we learned about nutrition, and I'm using air quotes here in this yeah. context, came from dieting. Mm-hmm. We never really learned from a a neutral point of view or from a a sports or performance point of view, what do we need to actually support our bodies? And so that's one thing. The second thing is we constantly hear the message still today, eat less, move more, eat less, move more, which when we are thinking about athletic populations, especially female athlete populations, whether you're elite or you're recreational, doesn't matter we still have certain needs and things we have to provide our bodies for them to just function at the basic level. (laughs) And then to add on top of that, being able to do things like build muscle, recover from our training, right? Have that energy from carbohydrates primarily to perform. And, And yet we're still immersed in this world of like, eat less, move more, eat less, move more, which is decontextualized. And not always applicable to our situation. So on the broad scope of things, sure. Like we don't want to overconsume energy chronically. We also um, need to exercise, right? It's an important health promoting habit, but a lot of women then take that and apply it to their training. Um, and then we add on top of it, if there's a weight class or weight consideration in a particular sport, like if you are going to compete in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or you are going to be an Olympic weightlifter, chances are, and those are just two examples, but you're going to run into weight class sports or pressures from a coach to change your body composition or whatever it might happen to be. So there's just a lot of things that I think are rolling around out there that we it's easy for us to get kind of drawn into well, then that just means I need to, you know, ratchet down even harder on my dieting or cut out all my carbohydrates. Um, and that has a lot of negative impact, not only on performance, but on health and well-being. And we know that from low energy availability states, then having the potential to put us at risk for uh, relative energy deficiency or, or relative energy deficiency in sport, which is a pretty serious thing. So more people are talking about this now. But even 10 years ago or 12 years ago when I was racing, not eating very much, and I started to notice I was just like, oh, my muscle was disappearing. I was starting to have a lot of symptoms and signs of low energy availability. I didn't even know what that was. I might have known female athlete triad from school. But the thing is, female athlete triad is embedded in red S, but it's only a small it's like a small triangle of the entire pie of potential, you know, symptomology and things that are going on. So I think there's more um, information these days, but we're still, like you said, facing this huge juggernaut of diet culture or just dieting mentality. And there's 
there's a lot that goes into detangling that and and right. providing good quality information and education. Oh gosh, so much there. Like especially for when we start narrowing it on female athletes because we can say like yeah, diet culture has totally impacted our society in general. Mm-hmm. Like there is not a woman alive who has not been exposed to it either directly or impacted by it indirectly with watching what their mom did or like what their sister did or what their teammates were doing, right? Like all of us have been impacted by some shitty messaging and advice, especially as it relates to nutrition for years. Mm -hmm. But with female athletes, it's almost like there's a thought of, well, I'm an exception or this is how I'm supposed to eat or this is how I'm supposed to feel. And as much as we like to think that we're self-aware, like we are not, we do not fully know how to listen to our body. We're very good at justifying and pushing through. So can you provide some examples of what it may look like if somebody is not getting the nutrition that they need, maybe what some of the symptoms are um, and how that shows up both in body composition, function and performance? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, low energy availability, we always think of issues with performance, I guess, Mm -hmm. is the top or the primary thing that becomes affected. So maybe that's you're going in on a particular day and you're supposed to hit, I don't know, eight out of 10 RPE on your lifts and you just feel really kind of drained and crappy that day. And so you're maybe getting to 60% or six out of 10 RPE or maybe slightly higher. And you're like, there's just no way I'm going to be like, I just feel so tired, drained. Um, you notice your strength is down. Um, maybe you just don't have the energy to get through the entire workout like you normally do. And I just want to pause and say there it's normal to have variations. And also if you have a menstrual cycle or you're somebody experiencing perimenopause or postmenopause, it, you're in that state. Um, we all have off days and right. we all have, you know, potential reasons why a, a single workout might not go great. But when you start to notice a a pattern over time. This is something to kind of notice for me personally in 2012, when I finally sought the help of a sports nutritionist, I just wasn't able to complete the workouts as, as written. And prior to that, I was able to do it just fine. So I started to suspect something was going on there. So we see things like reduced strength, uh, reduced power output, increases in fatigue. That's another big one. I mean, in your, in mid midlife, <laughs> you're stressed. There's a lot going on. You're tired. You're maybe not getting great sleep. But again, an increase in like this really draining fatigue. Yes, it can be due to other things, but quite often is because you're not actually eating enough food. And I see this in my students all the time. So we have these performance elements, but we also see things outside of performance. So, you know, maybe you're excessively sore from your workouts. And again, if this is uncharacteristic, sure, if you do 150 wall balls for time, quads are probably going to be sore no matter what, but you're excessively sore, very sore all the time. You have disruptions to your menstrual cycle. If you are someone who is cycling pretty normally up until that point, maybe you have recurring injuries. This is a big one I see uh, with a lot of people. So like kind of nagging injuries, recurring injuries, increased risk of injury, irritability and mood swings. Again, not one that like we sort of forget the mental emotional side of things, cognitively difficulty, concentrating, uh, reduced focus, decreased motivation to even go do your workouts or move at all. Again, we're sort of like, Oh, I just feel really lazy. Forgetting that if we have low energy states, then we're not 
our body's going to try to conserve and actually keep us more sedentary to match our low energy intake. Um, decreases in bone density, decreases in muscle mass, right? So it really is kind of across the board that there are many different signs and it's not just related to in the gym. So I encourage people if if they are noticing, they're checking off like several of these is to kind of get curious and maybe even start working with somebody to get a handle on what you really need to intake for your level of output. And oftentimes the reason we're not seeing the benefit from our training isn't because we're just lazy or slacking off or we don't care or we're not trying. It's because we just don't physically have the energy for higher intensity outputs, whether that's lifting or cardiovascularly, that we're going to see the 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 adaptation from our training. So if we can't, you know, move into progressive overload with our training, we're not going to see the training adaptation. And so it really does start with energy intake and making sure we're eating enough relative to our activity level. And so now this is a really loaded question. How do we know how much we should be eating? And with that, it changes seasonally, mm-hmm. which is something that I've talked a lot about is like what I needed to eat a year ago mm-hmm. is very different than what I need to be consuming now because my training output has yep. changed dramatically. So sure. how do we know a, like how to find that baseline and then B how to adapt that baseline, whether to kind of match, like I'm training more or I'm training a little bit less during this particular season. How do we know? I always like to say your your body is not a spreadsheet. So, um, you know, that's a, it's a really common question. And of course, humans love simplified equations and algorithms and things that can help us neatly and nicely put things into a box. And, you know, if we could just input all of our biometric data, we would get a number spit out at the end and that would be the end of it, which is a decent place to begin. And so there are a couple of different ways we can sort of estimate roughly what our energy uh, intake needs would be. So one example is the Harris-Benedict equation. There are other equations that we can use that take into account, you know, um, biological sex, for example, although a limitation there would be most of them are just two options. You know, a lot of these equations aren't perfect, but that's the starting point. Um, Your height, your weight, your age, your activity level itself. So that's one way. Another really important way of sort of estimating again comes more from research, which is looking at how much fat-free mass do you have as an individual and therefore how much caloric intake do you need based on that fat-free mass? And that actually helps us to understand some of the low energy availability cutoffs as well. So for example, women tend to need at least 30 kilocalories or 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. And at that point, we're in low energy availability, which I'll just kind of give you a ballpark for somebody like my size is somewhere around, I don't know, 1500 calories. So we think about the pervasiveness of like 1200 calorie diets, right? And we just see it's very, very low. Men, on the other hand, can get away with a lot lower uh, cutoff. So it's somewhere around 15. Um, And then for like more optimal performance, we're looking at 40 to 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. Again, that's a, a different way of estimating. But from there, we have to consider, you know, what is our level of output? Like you said, maybe we're going more into a building season, we're trying to get some hypertrophy, some muscle growth, 
and that's just the season of our training that we're in, we're going to need to make sure we're not in a huge deficit because we actually need to build tissue and specifically protein intake has to be high enough. Um, If we're doing a lot more high intensity, especially cardiovascular training, so maybe we're doing more sprint intervals, more hit workouts and things of that nature, especially, or maybe we're going into a period of time where we're doing a lot longer endurance training for whatever reason, our carbohydrate needs are probably going to be a lot higher. So those are different ways we can start to sort of fluctuate things. Um, The fat intake part for a lot of people is not a problem. Like getting enough fat is not very hard to do in our diet, um, which is great. But now we have, you know, a lot of people who are afraid of carbohydrates. And so we have to kind of meter our, you know, our carbohydrate needs can really go up or down depending upon our activity levels, how much intensity we're putting out in our training or duration, for example. So those are just some general guidelines, I would say, um, keeping protein, you know, relatively on the higher side, knowing that um, we need to preserve lean muscle tissue and provide our bodies that anabolic building signal. And that a lot of us are falling very short. You know, again, protein is a range. Um, I don't tell people not to stress too much about exact numbers, like try to get in between this range and this range. But if we're not taking in enough protein, then that's going to make it really difficult for us to repair and recover that muscle tissue that we're so desperately trying to build, um, especially when it comes to those essential amino acids and so on and so forth. We, we need to eat them. We can't make <laughs> the, the essential amino acids. So we need to to eat them. We need to think about our training. Are we getting them in our body somewhat close to the time that we're training? You know, we don't need to, again, stress about things, I don't think. But um, keeping keeping that in mind, making sure overall our daily intake is sufficient is is really important. Which is, it's so hard because even as somebody who, I understand, I understand this. Like I speak this language, <laughs> I can coach this. And as my training is increased with adding a lot more jujitsu and then mm-hmm. I'm still lifting and I'm, but I also like to run. Like, I kind of like, like to do things both for like training purposes and also like for my brain. Yeah. I'm like, oh shit. Like I'm kind of doing a lot right now, mm-hmm. but I'm eating like I was when I wasn't doing as much. Okay. So then it's like, it's almost learning to leverage and match. What am I doing? And like, then what does my nutrition need to look like in order to support this season or this kind of output versus maybe what was my previous state? And I think that's very hard because we, especially female athletes get very routine and very married to like, these are the foods I eat. This is the quantity of foods I eat. This is the portion sizes of foods I eat. And it's hard to like expand that. And then the second you tell them, we actually like, you need to eat at least 30 more grams of protein, or you need to at least like have another couple servings of carbs because you're doing a lot more jujitsu or a lot more running or whatever it is. There's a huge mental block there. And there's even a mental block there for me that I was struggling with. And I had to get my friend outside eyes to kind of look at like, what does my training look like versus my nutrition? And she's like, shit, dude, (laughs) enough. And I was like, "Ah, like, I know, but also it's so hard to break our routines and habits. And I see a lot of female athletes get stuck in this very um, rigid way of operating. Well, because information is not the same thing as implementation. And to your point, we develop the way we, we action 
on information is by developing systems and structures and habits in our daily life that then allows us to put what we've learned into practice. And there's a whole host of things that can get in the way with that, especially like you said, what we what we're used to doing, because that's the whole way habits operate is that we have to think less consciously about the things that we're doing, which is why they become habits. So I I always think about this too. And and I've had this totally happen to me because coming from a lower carb way of eating, right? Which was a total mismatch for me to begin with. And then when I added in high intensity training, especially, and I was competing in that and I looked at what I was doing, I was doing the this, this things I had always done. Right. And that's where I started to notice that I was starting to fall short, like something wasn't working, but I, I just couldn't see at the time what it was because I was just so used to my own habits. And like you said, food choices and so on. And then all the things that we learned from diet culture, which we've already talked about. So uh, I've definitely experienced that as well, which is one of the reasons why having somebody outside of yourself to help you look at things can be so useful. Even when you feel like you've listened to all the podcasts or you know all the information, really taking that deep dive and looking and saying like, oh, here's a big gap that you weren't aware of. Like that's where outside help is so invaluable. Oh, it's so needed. And because we have blind spots and we also are again, we're like rigid. We're like, this Mm -hmm. is what I do. This is how I am. This is what's best for me. And it's like, but we're not our own coach. Like you just can't, (laughs) you can get yourself a really solid baseline, but to make tweaks when necessary, especially as we go through life changes, like pregnancy, postpartum, like injury, sickness, surgery, perimenopause, menopause, like these are significant differences in like why we can't do what we've always done. Like we are not supposed to keep doing what we've always done because we are not the same. Like how I train at 35 is not what I was doing at 25 is not what I was doing at 15, nor should it be. Right. And if (laughs) we're trying to set ourselves up for longevity, like Mm -hmm. not just fitness, but true longevity, then we have to reassess what we're doing and how we're doing it over time. A hundred percent. But yeah. that's not easy. So. No, it's not. It's not because we just have this. Well, first of all, we're not allowed to age in society, especially yeah. as as women. Yeah. Right. So it, it, there's this like expectation put on us that we then internalize that like we should never change. We should never age. We should always remain this youthful being. And it's just not the reality of what happens. So I think the more we can learn to work with those changes and meet ourselves where we're at, then the better. I'm not saying that's easy to do because again, we're oftentimes carrying a lot of internalized stuff and then getting all the messaging from the outside world as well, um, which makes it hard to move forward sometimes. But again, to your point, that's why like it's really hard to be your own coach because yeah. you don't even know where where your um, these areas are sometimes because it's how you've always done stuff. Right. And I mean, and there's just not a whole lot of, like we talked about earlier, like there's not a whole lot of examples of what that looks like. And, you know, we've, again, we've come so far with spotlighting, providing more education in certain realms, pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, menopause, like we are making strides, but there's not still not as many people as needed for like walking the talk and show us what that actually looks like. 
What does it actually look like to be training at this level, to be doing this or to be competing here, or at least like having this kind of lifestyle of being an athlete? There's not a whole lot of that once you like cross 30, it seems. Mm-hmm. So we or have to be kind of ahead of it. <laughs> yeah. Or it's sort of people are people who are doing it are sort of treated as, I don't know, freaks, like yeah. ab- abnormal or in some way, um, you know, there's something just strange and different about them and something that confers. And and of course there are genetic differences in all of us. And if somebody has been an athlete for their entire life, they might have a different training age than somebody who just started. So there's lots that goes yeah. into it, but I feel like these case studies that you see in the news, and I'm thinking of people like Ernestine Shepard, for example, um, who is competing in bodybuilding until the age of like 85. I think she just retired last year are sort of like curiosities instead of being seen as, you know, this is, yeah, maybe the way we've been conceiving of strength in older years is very limiting and not physiologically correct. I mean, where do we go with that? So I'm, I'm all for more stories about that and more people actually sharing real examples. Definitely starting to see that. And it's funny, like my mom, She's 64. She started CrossFit in her mid fifties. And like after doing nothing like that growing Mm -hmm. up, like she was in survival mode, raising my sister and I, so she didn't do any kind of fitness until her Mm fifties. And that's when she like started discovering, like she likes to get on her bike. And then she, I told her that she needed to start lifting weights. And so she started doing that, signed up for CrossFit back almost a decade ago. And, uh, it's been interesting because her doctors are shocked at her age and her level of fitness. They mm-hmm. like every time she goes in for her routine stuff, they they can't grasp that this is that she is how old she is and that these are her markers. And it's just still so new to see women that are older mm-hmm. who are grandparents or whatever that are able to kind of you know, deadlift over 200 pounds and like have a really high activity level as they age. And then people in her gym are still like, wow, this is so inspiring because so many of us didn't grow up seeing 60 something year olds lifting or going out on like eight mile hikes on a Tuesday. You know what I mean? Like that was Mm -hmm. not normal, but we're seeing, and I feel like in the next 20 years, we're going to be seeing so much of that, but it really goes to show that we are kind of at this beginning of what the future looks like for female athletes. I agree. I think about the the memes that went around not too long ago that were sort of like when we were growing up, the golden girls, like they were the same mm-hmm. age as the Sex in the City uh, yeah. you know, cast is now. And and just how we the way we and there's there is some stuff in there about ageism, obviously, to have that discussion, but it it's just kind of this interesting generational difference, I feel like, in how we're again, sort of reimagining what what our years ahead can be like if we so choose. And right. we're not resigned to that um, right. sort of inactivity. If we don't want to, we can be out there and doing cool stuff. Yeah. So some like tactical stuff here. So if we have, mm-hmm. say, somebody who is around 40 mm-hmm. and they are, you know, they're still wanting to be an athlete, what are some of the fundamentals that should be incorporated into their overall like healthy lifestyle? What are some big ones as they maybe enter perimenopause or that's on the horizon? Like what are some things that they need to be doing 
once they start getting closer to 40 or around that mark? Yeah. So I I think uh, the first one would be, you know, making sure that you're strength training, even if you do other sports, this is one of the big gaps that I had. And I was in my thirties when I was racing bikes. However, if I was doing it today and I wasn't lifting as a counter, a counterpoint, I guess, in my training, I would think that would be a huge issue. So even endurance athletes, even martial art, practitioners. I'm looking at my fellow BJJ practitioners here with the eye. Cause I see a lot of them are like strength training is going to hurt me. I'm like, actually strength training is going to be one of the things that helps you Not avoid injury. Yeah. So, um, making sure we're strength training to the point that we're able to go heavy ish. And now what I mean by that is we're just lifting to the point where the last couple reps are hard, but again, one of the things I think we tend to gravitate toward, especially as women is like more moderate weights, again, kind of a more bodybuilding style or lighter weights. And understanding that as we age, as we begin to lose the estrogen signal, or we're going through perimenopause and it's up and down, uh, certainly in postmenopause when it's very low, estrogen, specifically estradiol or E2, is really a hormone of of anabolic nature. It's helping us build. And so it also has influence on our muscle tissue, like our muscle satellite cells, for example. So we need that sort of mechanical signal, that mechanical tension. And this is well-documented in the literature that mechanical tension is one of the most important precursors to muscle growth and repair is that we need to stimulate the muscle cells in some way. And um, yeah, walking is wonderful and getting like lower intensity training is is a great thing to have in the mix. But we really need the strength of that signal to be there so that we get all of our muscle fibers working. And one of the things that we see as we're aging, as we start to slow down, our reaction time is slower, we're losing that ability of those type 2 A and B fibers to really fire quickly. And so we have to include that in our training. So making sure we're lifting heavy, again, relative to our level and building up over time, following progressive overload, but also things like sprinting or sprint intervals so that we're using, again, using these tissues, using these fiber types and uh, taking advantage of the sort of different energy systems and training those energy systems. So again, long, slow, aerobic, wonderful. Um, you know, ATP is is great, but it gets used up very quickly. And so re- really treating those anaerobic pathways is, is very useful. So I would say this is a very long answer, but making sure you're including variety in your training is really, really key and not getting too stuck on one single way of training. You know, we also have things like balance. So making sure you're doing some kind of balance drills or balance training. Plyometrics is very useful as well, again, for the power generation and working those really fast twitch fibers. And so sprinkling that in and amongst your training and finding some diversity in your training, I think is super, super important. Um, And the interesting thing is that as as women, oftentimes we're really well suited to like ultra endurance, long endurance, we can go and go and go forever. And so sometimes we we gravitate toward those types of training, especially as we get older. But again, 
if we can pepper in some of the other stuff, we're going to help our tissues, you know, stay stronger and more resilient. And we're going to do all the things that I just mentioned. So variety, mixing it up, um, making sure we're not just going too easy all the time. Because again, we have that messaging of like, everybody should just take it easy. We don't want to hurt ourselves. Or uh, we have these really limiting narratives about what, what we're even capable of doing or what we should want to do. The same thing I see a lot with the menstrual cycle is never lift, you know, don't lift weights in the second half of your cycle, your luteal phase. Right. Well, that's not actually what the research shows. You, it may be slightly more advantageous to add an extra session in your follicular phase, but there is currently no evidence that we should only be lifting in half the cycle. And so again, that gets treated like a bad game of telephone and spread around on social media where it's like, we should only ever do yoga or something gentle in the second half of the cycle, which is not the case. So we are strong. We are resilient. We are capable. Um, And so I would just say, it's okay to do hard things. We just need to be sure we're we're fueling enough and we're getting enough recovery. Um, Our stress levels can also be a lot higher, sort of more sympathetic dominant. So it's more important that we think about things like sleep and rest and recovery. We, you know, I always, I always joke when we were in college and you want to go to the gym, you'd stay up until two or three in the morning doing whatever college kids do. wake up, drink a Red Bull and go to the gym after, you know, three or four hours of sleep and you felt like a million bucks. Well, you can't do that anymore. Right. And, and so we have our own versions of that. I think as we get older, but it's, it's just keeping an eye on those things, knowing that we don't have to go hard 10 out of 10 every day. We need enough of that relaxing time or, or rest, like what is active recovery? We need to think about how do we welcome in our parasympathetic nervous system you know, how do we eat in a way that doesn't cause us to be in more chronic stress? Right. And, and so those are some of the changes that we're starting to see and, and that people I think would be very much better off if they started to embrace, but again, change isn't easy. Like we said earlier, and sometimes our brains are like, no, I'm just going to do what's familiar and comfortable. So I would say that those are some of the big ones. No, that was so insightful. And I think like, with everything, we see such a pendulum swing. It's like the second we get some insight or information on like the menstrual cycle, then everyone jumps into this, like, well, this is exactly what it needs to look like. And this is what's best, but like best is so relative. And like you said, we're not fragile and we are also not invincible. So you just sort of have to like learn who you are and who you're becoming and like what you're doing and does it like match what you are able to do that day. And Mm -hmm. instead of just like almost these really polarizing camps and these pendulum swings, like the nuance exists in the middle for a reason. Um, And then I think some of the things you're mentioning is like lifting heavy and, you know, incorporating different energy system training And I think what's so important for female athletes to keep in mind is like heavy is relative. So just because Mm -hmm. you were lifting 300 pounds a couple of years ago for your deadlift, doesn't mean that like that you don't have to lift that now for it to still be heavy for you now. Like that, I know for me, when I was like really on like a hard training cycle, strength cycle, like I was always trying to work off percentages and always trying to like basically get stronger all the time. And it's like, shit, like sometimes I just don't have that in me. Like I just don't like. (laughs) Yes, we're in season. So you can still lift heavy without it having to be so freaking rigid, or you can still run fast and sprint fast, even if it's not as fast as you were doing 
a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. Like it's still fast for you right now, Mm -hmm. challenging for you right now, heavy for you right now, far for you right now. And just being able to have a lot of freedom and flexibility and how we are measuring what is good enough for our body now. A hundred percent. I'm <laughs> I'm a huge fan of working off things like RPE or reps in reserve um, for those reasons. And that, you know, and that's for people who feel like they need a little bit more structure. A lot of the times the way I train is just off of feel, but I'm also very experienced in that. So I'm I I feel like I have just the the time and the practice to be able to kind of know more where my body is at. And I'm the type of person nowadays who's less likely to need sort of external breaks to keep me from overtraining. Although I used to be very different. It would be, you know, I felt like I would feel bad if I missed a rest day or sorry, if I missed a training day and took an extra rest day. And I think, you know, part of the advantage to talking about the cycle, for example, the menstrual cycle is something like, well, it's, you know, Hey, it's okay to adjust your training if you need to, but we should feel empowered to be able to adjust our training, no matter what day of the month it is, no matter what fucking part of the cycle that we're in. And, you know, so I see both sides of that, but I also feel like when, even if we're training for an event, it's not, it doesn't have to be as rigid as people make it out to be. And there are in reality, multiple training plans that could potentially get you to a same or very similar outcome. And I get it. The structure is helpful for people. The routine is helpful for people, but also we have to understand and and be aware of when does that become anxiety producing? Or do you feel like, you're doing something bad or wrong. If you adjust the training that day or something else happens and you just decide you're going to go active recovery or you're just not going to train at all. Like one, one point in time is unlikely to affect the outcome of what you're doing in terms of even an event. It's more, what are the patterns again over time? What does that training look like on a a more macro level? So I think uh, I wish we would get to the point where we just felt a little bit more empowered overall to make those calls and those decisions without stressing about it. But um, I don't know. I think we need to keep talking about that. that I know. There's so much freaking freedom on the other side yeah. of like rigidity with your training. Yeah. Like, and you can still be fit and mm-hmm. strong and perform well without being neurotic about tracking everything or about like what that schedule looks like or peaking or when you deload, like, I feel like the older you get to, you're like, well, like my life sort of naturally fits in seasons of deload or like weeks where like, I, that doesn't have to be part of my training as much now. Cause I like, I just know whether it's like my energy availability with my cycle or I'm traveling, I'm doing this, like it's going to look different and like different is okay. And I don't have to beat myself up for that, but that takes a very long time, especially for female athletes who are used to, well, this is what I do on my Mondays mm-hmm. and this is how many calories I consume. And these are the percents I work off of. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not good enough. And like all these narratives that we've quite literally been trained to create over the last 15 years. Yes. <laughs> I, I tell the story sometimes about how I actually went on vacation to Montana mm-hmm. and I, I brought a 36 pound kettlebell in a backpack with me. So I could make sure that uh, and I literally, you know, carried it on the plane yeah. so I could make sure that I had something to train with 
when I went on vacation. I mean, I don't do that anymore. And if you like to bring bands or something, I like it's fine. But I just at the at that time it felt like I if I took any time off as I was preparing for competition, that I would I would be ruining the whole thing. And so I literally brought a kettlebell with me on a plane. Oh, I know. It's funny to look back at the things that (laughs) like we were like, it was so justifiable at the time. And now we're like, man, like Mm -hmm. sometimes you just can't see the forest through the trees or whatever. And I think that that happens so often for female athletes. Like we think we're doing what's healthy and right Mm -hmm. and best for us, but really like we're just too zoomed in on the right now and not like the bigger picture of our health and longevity and even our mental health. Like, are we actually being healthy or is this like bordering an eating disorder, exercise disorder? Like this is our body dysmorphia coming out, which like everybody can experience on a spectrum. And I think like the older you get, the more ability we have to kind of like check ourselves and see that. Like there's just that maturity that comes, athletic maturity that comes with being in the game for a long time, Mm -hmm. but you also have to be willing to examine that. Yeah. Very well said. (laughs) Co-signed. Yeah, not not easy. So, no. like, can we pivot for a second? And yeah. you do jujitsu, I do jujitsu. Yeah. We're like kindred spirits here. Uh, you've been in it a bit longer than me. You're a purple belt and a very experienced yeah. purple belt. I have a lot of people that are like fascinated by this, mm. right? Because it's not it's not always very common to see women doing jujitsu, even though like there's of course a bazillion like you know, there's a lot of women that do, but it's still predominantly men in gyms. And if there are women, they tend to be maybe a little bit younger. Mm -hmm. So to be a woman in their thirties or in their forties, what would you recommend if they're considering signing up for jujitsu? Yeah, I was trying to figure this out not too long ago. I'm the second oldest woman at our academy. Um, the other one is maybe two years older. So, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's definitely a range in age. And I was rolling with one of the teenagers not too long ago. And she's like, wait, how old are you? And I said, 43. She's like, that's how old my dad is. And I was like, (laughs) I love, I love you. You're so cute. Wait, wait." Um, I think, wow, this is a great question. And uh, I think if you, are looking for something that's a, a different kind of challenge from what you've been doing, um, then jujitsu is absolutely challenging. And it is, I don't know, in my opinion, if you took to strength training relatively quickly, then it can be a very different learning curve. Yes. Because it's not just you and a bar or you and some weights. It's you and another person. And you you really can't do jujitsu alone. Yes, you can drill or you could get a a practice dummy or something, but like to actually participate in this, in the sport and the art of jujitsu, you need, an it's a human, human, uh, interaction. So it's something that I, I think you have to go in with a, appropriate expectations to, and get a feel for what the Academy is like. I mean, if you can go in and check it out, that's great. Um, but knowing that it's going to be hard from the begin, like day one, and it it the hard just changes. You know, I've I'm toward the end of purple belt, and I feel like what's hard about it has just morphed over time. <laughs> 
I don't ever feel like it's going to get any easier. And at the same time, it's, it's really fun and really gratifying. Um, but there are also days where, um, I'm just like, occasionally I'll go in and I'm like, you know what? I just don't want anyone to touch me today. So I'm just going to like <laughs> sit this out, <laughs> uh, just go home or, or whatnot. So I think the biggest thing for, for women is understanding that it is close contact, I think. And there is a lot of sort of trust that has to be built between training partners. And if that idea of close contact is just not your thing, like there's probably other martial arts that that could give you a, you know, some other, I don't know, training that you're looking for that are less close contact. But literally on day one, chances are somebody will be on top of you or in a very close contact situation where you're like, okay, so this is how it is. Like there is no personal space. Oh, no. That's in fact, the, the goal is to remove someone's personal space. Oh, so, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're trying to, to make someone, uh, you're trying to take away all of their space. And so you're trying to be as close to them as you physically can be. And um, it's just, if you don't want to be in a striking sport, I think it's a great option where you don't want to get kicked on, on purpose, kicked or punched. Stray elbows and knees do happen and occasionally you'll get popped by something, but it's very, it's not part of the game. Right. So it can be a nice option if you're like, Hey, I want to do a martial art. Um, the self-defense aspect is, is important. I think for women, especially, or for smaller individuals is to kind of understand how would you behave in a, if, if a, if an altercation or something ever got taken to the ground, which is a fairly good chance. Right. Um, so it's just fun. Um, and I feel like if you're curious about it, go check it out. I never even, so this is a big thing that people don't know. I had never even seen outside of watching UFC. I had never seen a jujitsu class or competition. I, even on YouTube, I yep. just went in and I was like, all right, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to try this out. So Go check it out. Get yeah. get a sense of what you're getting into first, I feel like. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, it took me a long time to sign up. My husband's doing it for a very long time. And honestly, I didn't even want to join the school that he was at because I just felt like, like, I don't want him to tell me what to do. Like, I'm just going to be like annoyed. <laughs> and I just get competitive and I like just shut down. So I knew I needed to have some separation if I wanted to do it. But then when my oldest, who's like he started at four. I mm. was like, God, there's, I'm curious, but I also want to make sure I'm in an environment where I feel like I could not be Jared's wife or Cade's mom. I could just show up as like free and not with like anything preceding that. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to sort of, I had to be at a point too, in my own athletic maturity where my ego was removed where I was like, I am okay doing something that I'm not supposed to be good at. I'm okay sucking. I am okay. Like this is a truly a different language and a different movement language than anything I'd ever been exposed to. Mm -hmm. So when you mentioned the um, difference between like, if you took to like lifting pretty easily, well, like, cool, this is not anything like that. Like this, nope. it's totally <laughs> like, and I'm like not a process driven person and everything about jujitsu is process, right? It's like these little steps. It's like these micro things that create this like macro experience. And that is so hard for my brain to do, but I knew that's freaking exactly what I needed to do, especially as I'm like in my thirties. And I was mm -hmm. like, 
I need something that keeps me in the moment because I'm never in the freaking moment. I'm always way ahead or thinking about something else or thinking about something that happened like a month ago or whatever. Like I'm never in the moment naturally as a human. So for me, that's the only thing that keeps me truly present. Mm-hmm. And that was that has been the addictive part for me. It's not so much of like, like the physical stuff is awesome. Like it's very empowering and there's like great camaraderie there. It's been critical, like moving to a new state, having that as a community um, of like like-minded people. All of that is great. But I think from a athletic development, especially at, in this particular season of life, it is such a gift to be able to experience that form of movement, that form of fitness and that form of like mental resilience that freaking nothing else can simulate. Nothing can simulate that. Yeah, I agree. I I was talking on a, a jujitsu specific podcast one time and that was one of the things that I feel like is really underrated about jujitsu is because you really have to be present in your own body for so many different reasons while you're doing the sport. Um, and you know, low key, we're trying to hurt each other, but (laughs) typically there's, there's a a little bit of a, I mean, most people, the intensity is not quite like a real world experience. It's a simulation, but even so you have to start learning. How do I control my breath? Um, you know, what, of course there's a problem solving kind of puzzle aspect to it where you're trying to figure out how do you get the next move and how do you advance or how do you defend? And at the same time, it's just, uh, you have to focus on the task. <laughs> like you, you can't be thinking about your shopping list right. or, you know, like you said, what, you know, in my case, it'd be something that I said to somebody like five days ago that I'm like questioning Mm-hmm. how they feel about it or yeah. you know like exactly. those sorts of those sorts of things so it does really make you uh stay present and be i think very much in your body and um learn how to learn how to sort of work with that controlled chaos right yeah which is like my whole life is just chaos so feeling like i have a little bit of control is like it's very appealing to me i'm like this is kind of nice but yeah um yeah i think that there's so many women that are like that looks cool that seems empowering but then they're intimidated by the fact that there's not a whole lot of us typically in class mm-hmm. and yeah that close contact and just like a lot of variables that influence it but i think it's always great to bring in other women that are you know doing jiu-jitsu, have been doing it and mm. enjoy it to be able to provide some of that perspective. So I just wanted to like tangent there. Yeah. Yeah. And not, you know, I think a lot of women also see cauliflower ear and they're like, I don't want that. And well, I mean, shit, man, like I got <laughs> need in the ear last week and I've been like managing some cauliflower ear, like on the inside. And it yeah. is, it's, I'm like, Fuck, that's not what I wanted, but like, yeah. Are, so Yeah. Just oh, wrong, wrong placement of my ear at the wrong time, and mm-hmm. boom. And my husband's like jealous, you know. And like the guy's like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's so badass. And I'm like, right, but like, I'm a mom in my 30s. I'm not trying to like have cauliflower ear. I've been wrestling for 20 years. Like, what the hell? But yeah, yeah so that is very much year. a thing that can happen. It is unlucky, like me. Yeah, I mean, if you're super, 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 super concerned about it, you can wear wrestling headgear um, to protect your ears and. A lot of people do. It's not uncommon. So yeah, I might know. I might have to join that club soon. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but anyway, we've been chatting a while, but where can people find out 
more about the work that you do and the offers and services that you have. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, so I have my podcast, the Fuel Your Strength podcast. You can find that on all major podcast apps. And we talk about all sorts of topics regarding training and nutrition for women, especially over 40. Um, on my Instagram, I do a lot of education there. That's at Steph underscore Godro. And then my website, StephGodro.com is where I have information about working with me um, and all the other good stuff that I offer. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. I feel like People need to listen to this episode twice because there were so many like good little like things to pull out and to just really kind of think on. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like there's just a lot of opportunity for self-reflection in this episode. And I really appreciate you spelling it out for us. And this is absolutely a conversation that needs to be continued. And thank you for setting that example and being a thought leader for so many women that are pursuing this lifetime of athleticism. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practice Brave podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and help us spread the work we are doing to improve the overall information and messaging in the fitness industry and beyond. Now, if you are pregnant and you are looking for a trustworthy exercise program to follow, I have you covered. The Pregnant Athlete Training Program is a well-rounded program for pregnancy with workouts for each week that are appropriate for your changing body. That's 36 weeks of workouts, three to four workouts each week, and tons of guidance on exercise strategy. We also have an at-home version of that program. If you are postpartum and you're looking for an exercise program to follow, the eight-week postpartum athlete training program would be a really great way to help bridge the gap between rehab and the fitness you actually want to do. From there, we have the Practice Brave Fitness Program, which is an ongoing strength conditioning program where you get new workouts each week and have a lot of guidance from myself and my co-coach, Heather Osby. This is the only way that I'm really offering ongoing coaching at this point in time. If you have ever considered becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach, I would love to have you join us. Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism is a self-paced online certification course that will up-level your coaching skills and help connect the dots between pelvic health and long-term athletic performance, especially during pregnancy and postpartum. Become who you needed and become who your online and local community needs by becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach. Thank you again for listening to the Practice Brave podcast. I appreciate you. And please help me continue spreading this messaging, this information, and this work.